going to ask you to take your Bible, turn to the book of Job once more. Uh, when you're talking about suffering, we looked at Joseph last week, and Joseph is a great character about suffering and triumphant in the midst of his sufferings, but probably the greatest sufferer in the Old Testament is Job. And we've looked at his situation before. This morning we'll look at it once again. Many years ago, Annie Johnson Flint wrote a wonderful poem called What God Hath Promised that I believe is important for us to hear this morning. For some of us have grown to believe that if we're Christians, we will not suffer. Isn't that strange? We sing a song, at least the older folks sing a song entitled Man of Sorrows, What a Name. It talks about the suffering of our Lord and how strange it is that we think that as Christians, though our Lord suffered, we shall never have to. I don't know who filled our minds with that garbage, but we need to get it out because the student is not better than the teacher. Whatever they've done to the teacher, they will do to the students. So we need to be sure that we understand that suffering will come our way. Annie Johnson Flint tried to remind us of that in her poem. She wrote, God hath not promised skies always blue, flower-strewn pathways all our lives through. God hath not promised sun without rain, joy without sorrow, or peace without pain. But God has promised strength for the day, rest for the labor, light for the way, grace for the trials, help from above, unfailing sympathy, and undying love. God has promised that he will be with us in the midst of our suffering. In this fifth message in the series, When Bad Things Happen to God's People, it's important that we realize that we as Christians do suffer. Our faith does not make us exempt from suffering. What God has promised to us is that he will renew our spiritual strength, that he will be with us in the midst of our sufferings every step of the way. So here's what I want you to see this morning. We can survive sorrow if we understand the stages and apply the strategy found in Scripture. We can survive sorrow if we understand the stages and apply the strategy found in Scripture. You see, tragedy is a crisis. But sorrow is a process. And like any process, it takes time to work that process out in our lives. But there are those who have not experienced a deep sorrow in their lives. And so when they see people dealing with sorrow and working through the stages of grief, they often want to hurry them up. They often want them to to get on through it, to get their crying over with and, and get it over with. They remind me of an episode of the sitcom All in the Family when Edith, Archie's loving wife, was going through that physical and chemical change that females go through called the change of life. She'd be teary-eyed one moment and in a furious rage the next moment. And that went on for two or three weeks. And finally there came a moment when Archie had had all he could stand. And he looked at her and said, Now look, Edith, if you're going to have a change, you better do it right now. I'll give you just 60 seconds. Now the truth is that Edith couldn't go through the change of life in 60 seconds, and we can't get through our sorrows in 60 seconds either, can we? It takes a whole lot longer than that. It takes time to go through the various stages of sorrow. Often these stages progress through uh, successfully uh, moving clearly and progressively from one stage to the next. At other times, people take the stages of sorrow in a different order than I'm going to present them today. Sometimes they overlap stages. At other times, people even relapse from a later stage back to an earlier stage. You can't tell what's going to happen. Okay? Back in 1962, a famous now book was written called Good Grief. 
Good grief. And in that book, we were introduced to the stages of sorrow. Well, I should say, in that book, people who had never read the book of Job were introduced to the stages of sorrow. Because in the book of Job, we see these stages of sorrow. They're very plain. They're very obvious and evident. But the fellow who wrote that book thought he was doing something brand new. wasn't doing anything brand new. It's already given to us in God's Word. I suggest to you that everything you need for life and godliness has already been given to you in God's Word. That's what the Bible says. And because of that, of course, there ain't nothing new under the sun. What we need to know, God has given us. So let's look, if you will, at this Old Testament character, Job, once more. Chapter 1, verse 1, we're introduced to him very quickly. Just a nice little uh, picture of Job and his life. It says, In the land of Uz there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys. And he had a large number of servants, and he was the greatest man among all the people who lived in the East. That's his introduction, a very special guy. A God-fearing man, he shunned evil, he loved God, he did what was right, but he suffered greatly. Let's begin with number one, understanding the stages common to sorrow. Understanding the stages common to sorrow. And the first of those stages is shock and denial. See, when a person experiences a severe physical injury, the body goes into a physiological reaction characterized by marked drop in blood pressure and the slowing down of vital bodily functions. We call that shock in the medical world. And it's a good thing because it saves people from bleeding to death. Emotional shock works much the same way. It keeps us from feeling the full blow of the tragedy all at one time and it gives us time to let the tragedy sink in little by little. Though its theology is thoroughly sound, the very patient and triumphantly good response of Job in chapters 1 and 2 is probably more the result of shock than it is a, his deep spiritual character. Why do I say that? Because after the first two chapters, for the next 35 chapters, Job, as we said in my earlier generation, let it all hang out. Okay? Job really expresses himself emotionally. Sometimes very angry. Sometimes just tremendously frustrated. Sometimes just not knowing what to say. I, I can imagine he was, it's not recorded for us, but I can imagine he was just screaming and hollering. Now, that's not extra biblical stuff, okay? I, I just imagine that was happening. And there's Job going through all of these things in the next 35 chapters. Probably what he went through in chapters 1 and 2 is more numbness and shock than anything else. Let's take a look at this initial reaction. After Job found that he had lost his children, all ten of them, to a tragic accident, and then he lost all of his flocks and herds as well, we see his response in Job chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, that says, At this Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord is given and the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, or may the name of the Lord be praised. Now that is not only a famous quotation in Scripture, it is also an incredibly mature and godly way of dealing with the tragedies that he endured. But Job's suffering is not over yet. In round one, Satan was forbidden to touch Job's body. But now comes round two, you can almost hear the bell ringing. Now comes round two, and Satan has been allowed to touch 
Job's body, to decimate his health, if you will, but not to take his life. Notice, if you will, chapter 2, verses 7 through 10. It says, So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him what most people would have said to him, which was, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, You're talking like one of the foolish women. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And in all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Another motion that accompanies shock and numbness is denial. By denial, it's a refusal to believe that the tragedy has actually happened. And you hear denial in the hospital. When somebody says to the doctor, Surely, doctor, you must be wrong. I can't be dying. And you hear denial in the funeral home. When someone says, I can't believe he's gone. He was just here yesterday. And he's gone for good now. Shock, numbness, denial are normal stages of sorrow. Then there's secondly, expression in mourning. Expression in mourning. We see it in chapter 3. Verses 1 through 5 of the book of Job, it says, After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, May the day of my birth perish, and the night in which it was said, A boy is born. That day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine upon it. May darkness and deep sorrow shadow claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm its light. Eventually, the full blow of our loss sinks in, and we begin to express it emotionally. Unfortunately, our culture doesn't encourage the emotional expression of our sorrow. People are uncomfortable around folks that are expressing their sorrow. We try to anesthetize it with tranquilizers or trivialize it with pious platitudes or cauterize it with an unfeeling stoicism. And I'm not saying to you that when you experience a sorrow that you ought to become an emotional basket case. But neither am I saying to you that when sorrow hits your life, you ought to act like the captain of the Titanic who when his ship was going down, said to the sailors who knew they were about to drown these words, All right, lads, be British now. And they knew what that meant. Keep a stiff upper lip. Don't show your sorrow. Jesus wept when Lazarus died. You remember that? Jesus wept when Lazarus died. Remember what I've told you about Jesus before? At least one of the things. About Jesus, I told you, You should never try to be more spiritual than Jesus. It will get you into trouble. Never try to be more spiritual than Jesus. If Jesus wept, guess what? It's all right for you to weep. Particularly if you're weeping about something that's not selfish. Paul the Apostle wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that the resurrection tempers our tears. But we still have tears. Calvin Miller, the Christian writer who taught for seven years at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, my alma mater in Fort Worth, and then today teaches at Samford University in their Beeson Divinity School, said this about crying. He said, crying is common in this world. With maturity, the sound and reason for crying changes, but never does it stop. I like the way he said that. All infants do it everywhere, even in public. By adulthood, most crying is done alone and in the dark. By adulthood, that's the way it is. Weeping for babies is a sign of health and evidence that they are alive. Isn't this a chilling omen? Not laughters, but tears is the life sign. You know, joy should characterize our lives as believers, but Calvin Miller was correct when he said tears will accompany our lives because we will go through some sorrows 
in our lives. Third stage is anger and questioning. Anger and questioning. The emotional volcano of sorrow eventually erupts and spews forth a thousand unanswerable questions. And people vent that anger at several different targets. At doctors, preachers, other family members, friends. Eventually they vent that anger at God Himself. That's what Job is doing in chapter 10, verses 1 through 7. He said, I loathe my very life, therefore I will give free reign to my complaint and speak out in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me, but tell me what charges you have against me. Does it please you to oppress me, to spurn the work of your hands while you smile on the schemes of the wicked? Do you have eyes of flesh? Do you see as a mortal sees? Are your days like those of a mortal? Are your years like those of a man? That you must search out my faults and probe after my sin, though you know that I am not guilty and that no one can rescue me from your hand. Life hits us with all kinds of things that we can't understand. Many years ago now, when I was a student at Auburn University, War Eagle, I didn't hear any other War Eagles, so I assume I'm the only one. I was considering what I was going to do with my life, and I had a little bit of difficulty with that, believe it or not. I was uh, working my way through Auburn, and I changed majors several times, but I was finally on the track I was going to take, and I knew I was either going to teach high school biology and chemistry. Why I would want to do that, I don't know. But I was either going to do that. Amen, Scott Turner. Well, I was going to do that, or I was going to work toward a degree as a physician's assistant. There was one big obstacle in my way. And it was called physics. I'd never taken physics. Somehow I'd escaped high school and never taken physics. At my high school in Sarasota, I opted rather to take marine biology because it was a lot more fun. You went out on the boat and everything else. Sat in the classroom all the time in physics. I didn't want to do that. So I took marine biology instead. And to add insult to injury, my math background was not very good. I did barely get by in pre-calculus with trigonometry, but that was because my teacher was also my football coach. And he did not want to see me again the next fall. Okay? So I barely made it through that. Here I am trying to take physics, not really having the math background for it, and I'm really going to struggle, but I had to get through it in order to pursue my goal. My physics professor, professor was Asian, and as I like to say, I learned more Chinese than I did physics. Day after day, after filling up three chalkboards, I mean big old chalkboards he had on rollers, and he'd just roll them up to the ceiling and start the next one. He filled up three of those every class. And after filling up three chalkboards, that brilliant man would end his class with a smile and with the same old words. He always said the same old thing. He said, you know, understand? You go home and study and you understand. I went home and studied, and I still didn't understand, okay? (laughs) All those numbers and symbols, I didn't know what they meant. And I got, you know, I started class on time. I had had an excuse for having a hard time in high school chemistry. I started school a week late. But in this class, I was all right. I just didn't understand it at all. Well, I, I got through that. I got my degree in secondary science education. I made C's in physics. That was good enough for me. I just wanted to get out of there. So it's okay that there are things in your life you don't understand. There are going to be some sorrows that come your way that you don't understand as well. Just don't get stuck in the stage of sorrow. Don't get stuck in this stage of anger, okay? 
And I say that, I emphasize that because this is one of the two most likely stages that people get stuck in in sorrow. Anger. You've seen it. I've seen it. You've seen people, I've seen people who got stuck in this stage of anger and they became bitter people. Because they're stuck there in this stage of anger. And then as scary as it is, you need to work through anger so you can get to the next scary stage. And what is it? It is depression and isolation. Depression and isolation. In Job chapter 14, verses 1 through 2, Job has hit that stage that we call depression and isolation. He bemoans with the words, Mortals born of women are a few days and full of trouble. They spring up like flowers and wither away. Like fleeting shadows, they do not endure. Depression has been called the midnight of the soul. It's a dark pit that seems impossible to climb back out of. It comes to us when we begin to believe that all of life is hopeless and meaningless. We see it in Job chapter 17. In chapter 17, verse 1, Job finally confesses, My spirit is broken, my days are cut short, the grave awaits me. Those are words of depression. Those are words from someone who is absolutely hopeless. Add to the darkness of depression, the piercing loneliness of a lost loved one, and you know why this stage is the deepest and most difficult to survive. Always keep in mind that this stage will pass with time. Expect it to visit you in your sorrow, but don't make a lifelong friend of it, because it's not your friend. Know that at the end of this midnight of the soul, there's a golden light of acceptance and hope, and that's the final stage of sorrow. Acceptance and hope. The goal of grief is not to understand it. You probably won't understand it. You won't know why it happened, most likely. So the goal of grief is not to understand it. It is simply to accept it. And with that acceptance will come a new dawning of hope. And for 35 chapters in the book of Job, chapters 3 through chapters 37 or 38, God is silent while Job grieves and laments and questions and argues with his so-called comforters. But in chapter 38, God finally speaks, and it's the longest speech that God ever makes in the Bible. Do you know that? When God starts speaking, in chapter 38, it's the longest speech God ever made in the Bible. God gives Job a revelation. Job wanted an explanation of why this was happening. But instead, God gives Job a revelation of his sovereign power and goodness. And Job is left reeling as he suddenly sees that the presence of God is all the answer he ever really needed. And dear friend, I suggest the same is true for us. The presence of God is all the answer that we really need. Look with me, if you will, at Job chapter 42, verses 1 through 3 and then verse Verse 5 through 6 says, Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things, and no plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, Who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. Where is God? In the midst of your suffering and sorrow? The same place He was when His Son was suffering and going through sorrow. He was right by His side. And He is right by your side. You'll discover Him if you look for Him in the midst of your sorrow. Robert Service wrote a tender poem that communicates that truth. It goes like this. I sought Him on the purple seas. I sought Him on the peaks of flame. Amid the gloom of giant trees and canyons lone, I called His name. The wasted ways of earth I trod in vain, in vain, I found not God. Then after roamings far and wide and streets and seas and deserts wild, I came to stand at last beside 
the deathbed of my little child. Low as I bent beneath the rod, I raised my eyes, and there was God. Where's God? He is with us in the midst of our suffering. Let's move from understanding the stages common to sorrow to applying the strategy to overcome sorrow. Applying the strategy to overcome sorrow. How do we survive the stages of sorrow? In other words, how do we keep from getting stuck in one of these stages like anger or depression? How do we do that? Let me give you three ideas. Number one, keep talking to God. Keep talking to God. In Job chapter 13, verses 20 through 22, Job prays, Only grant me these two things, God, and then I will not hide from you. Withdraw your hand from me and stop frightening me with your terrors. Then summon me and I will answer, or let me speak and you reply to me. You know, when you've had a spat with someone, we would have a fight with somebody. What is our tendency? We may, in the beginning of that fight, we may give them all we got verbally, right? We may holler at them and say all kinds of things to them. But once that fight has begun, what do we tend to do? We don't talk to them anymore. The old word for it is we shun them. We see them coming down the street, we turn around and go the other way. We see them at a party, we don't shake hands with them, we don't say anything to them. We avoid them. And you know what? When people get stuck in these stages of grief, they do the same thing to God. They avoid Him. They stop talking to Him. They just stop talking to Him. Even though Job was angry with God, he never stopped talking to God. And that's why he was able to survive the stages of sorrow, my friend. Keep talking to God and you will work your way through those stages. And secondly, keep walking with God. Not only keep talking with God, but keep walking with God. Oftentimes when people experience a deep sorrow, they stop praying. Just I mean, they've been praying for years, daily. They stop praying. They stop reading their Bibles. Maybe they had a daily devotional time every morning and read the Bible. I hope you do. But they just stop that. They stop coming to church. We don't see them anymore. Just something, just boom, it's gone. They don't come anymore. They stop walking with God. Job didn't do that. Notice what he says in Job chapter 23, verse 12. I've not departed from the commandment of his lips, and I've treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. We can find refuge in prayer. We can find refuge in God's Word, and we can find refuge in Christian fellowship in the midst of the storms of sorrow. In 1858, Scottish missionary John G. Payton and his wife Mary sailed for the New Hebrides Islands, not too far off the coast of Australia in the South Pacific. They were not the first missionaries to try to evangelize the native peoples there. Twenty years earlier, in 1839, two London missionaries reached the New Hebrides Islands, but they were killed and eaten by cannibals only minutes after their boat landed. So it took great courage for John and his wife Mary to try to reach these New Hebrides natives only 20 years after two other missionaries had sealed their witness with their own blood. I've shared with you before the incredible story. I hope you remember the story of John Payton and his wife, how one night the cannibals surrounded their hut intent on burning them out and killing them. And then suddenly, for some reason, as the Paytons prayed with all their hearts, those cannibals, those natives just left. It was a year later when the chief of that tribe came to know Christ. And John Payton asked him the question, said, Don't you remember that night? And the the chief said, Yes, I do. And he said, Why did you leave? You were going to kill my wife and myself. Why, Why did you leave? And he said, Well, who were those large, tall men with drawn swords 
surrounding the hut. We were afraid to try to attack you because we were afraid they would have destroyed us. And it was at that moment John Payton realized the angels of God had protected him and his family. But as is true for all of us, great faith and even great exploits for Christ does not necessarily make us immune to future suffering. Sometime after that miraculous deliverance, the Paytons left that island and went to the island of Tana. And only three months after arriving on the island of Tana, Mary, John's wife, died. And one week later, their infant son died. John Payton was plunged into a deep sorrow. Feeling terribly alone and surrounded by savage people who showed him no sympathy, he wrote these words, Let those who have ever passed through any similar darkness as of midnight feel for me. As for all other, it would be more than vain to try to paint my sorrows. But for Jesus, the word but probably better translated as except, except for Jesus and his fellowship, I would have gone mad and died. John Payton saying, I kept walking with God. I kept walking with God. Even in the worst trial of my life, I kept walking with God. And I got through it. Dear friend, if you keep walking with God, you will get through it as well. So keep talking with God first. Keep walking with God second. And lastly, keep trusting in God. Keep trusting in God. In the September 1981 edition of Ladies Home Journal magazine. I'm not a subscriber nor a reader. But in the September 1981 edition of Ladies Home Journal magazine, the question was asked, in whom do you trust? The answers were both enlightening and alarming. Back in that year, 40% of American women said they, they trusted most in the CBS News anchor man Walter Cronkite. Can you believe that? 40% of... 26% they tr- said they trusted in Pope John Paul. I imagine most of those were Catholics. Billy Graham only got 6% of the vote. I imagine he was a little bit insulted. But God only got 3% of the vote. Isn't it strange that on our minted and printed currency, we have the words, in God we trust. But it evidently is only 3% of us that trust in God. Trusting in God. In the sorrows, it's especially important. I've shared with you in an earlier message in this series that in the midst of Job's sufferings, he utters one of the greatest confessions of faith. One of the greatest confessions of trust in God that we find in all the Old Testament. It's comparable to Peter's great confession of faith in the New Testament where Peter says to Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's the high point of the New Testament. And the high point of the Old Testament is when Job in chapter 13 verse 15 declares, though God slays me, yet will I trust Him. Though God slays me, yet will I trust Him. Think about those incredibly faithful words. It doesn't matter what happens to me. Even if God slays me, I'm going to trust Him. Wow, I wish I could say that. You wish you could say that? Though God slays me, yet will I trust Him. Now, I'm I'm going to share something with you. Job didn't necessarily, he, he wasn't feeling that. He probably couldn't have said that right at the very beginning. But it was the suffering that he worked through that allowed him to say that at the end. 
Though God slays me, yet will I trust Him. Despite all of his suffering and sorrow, Job trusts God, and he believes that God knows what he is doing. In Job chapter 23, verse 10, he says, But God knows the way that I take, and when he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. After 35 years of preaching, there are some stories that become your favorites. Some favorite humorous stories and some favorite dramatic stories. My favorite humorous stories about the preacher that got out of work and had to go wear the bear costume in the zoo and... And then he uh, got chased by the lion, and he found out the guy in the lion was a preacher that also was out of work. But uh, that's my favorite story. My favorite, one of my favorite other stories. story about the Georgia Christian young man trying to establish himself as a peach farmer. He'd worked hard and invested all his money in a peach orchard, and everything was going very well, everything was looking good. Early the next spring, his trees blossomed beautifully, and he knew it was going to be a bumper crop that year. But suddenly there came a very late frost, and it was a hard frost. And he knew what that meant. It meant that his peaches would not develop. They would die. He didn't go to church the next Sunday, nor the next Sunday, nor the next Sunday. He'd stopped talking to God, hadn't he? He'd stopped walking with God. Finally, his preacher came to see him. The young man said in anger, I'm not coming back to church, preacher. Do you think that I could worship a God who cares so little for me that he would let my peaches die because of a frost? The old minister sat there for a moment and thought it through and finally said to him, Young man, God loves you more than he loves your peaches. And though God knows that it's impossible to raise peaches with frost, he also knows that it is impossible to grow strong men without some frost in life. And God's goal is to raise men, not peaches. God wants to grow us. Sometimes that's going to mean some frost, some suffering, some sorrow in our lives. But if we'll trust in God, then we'll eventually see Him bring good out of our sorrows. And you know, that's exactly, that's exactly what God did with the sorrows of His Son, our Lord Jesus Isaiah 53, verse 5, describes Jesus as despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But his sorrows had a purpose. Verses 5 and 6 go on to say, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement or punishment that brought us peace was placed upon him. And by his stripes or by his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord laid on him, laid on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Dear friend, have you asked Jesus to take away your sins? He died for your sins. Have you asked him to take away your sins? And secondly, this morning, if you're here dealing with grief, have you asked Jesus to help you bear your sorrows? Have you asked Jesus to help you bear your sorrows? Let's pray together. Father, Thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to come to your house, to fellowship with other believers, to pray, to read your word, and to hear the hope that we have in Christ. I pray, Lord, that if there's anybody here who doesn't know you yet, they will come to know you this day. That your spirit would work in this room even now. That you would speak to the hearts of those who've never opened their hearts to you. And that you would save them, Lord. And I pray, Lord, for those who are here today experiencing their own sorrows, their own griefs, their own pain. 
that you, Father, would comfort and strengthen them and let them know that you're going to walk through that entire process with them. And somehow, there'll be the light of hope on the other side. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.